This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. And since 1996, for over 26 years now, this is hell is broadcast from Northwestern University's WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. But in Evanston, which is just across the northern border of Chicago. Recently, Evanston made history by becoming the first municipality in the United States to engage in a program of reparations meant to fix the city's long history of racial discrimination and help give immediate and direct assistance to those within the black community. Is it going to undo centuries of slavery or the history of the United States, which from the very beginning has had structural and institutional racism? Well, no. But supporters see it as a first step, as something that can be done right now, immediately, as the federal government has yet to implement a reparations program, and who knows when that will happen, or if it ever will, or what form that will take. One of the problems with reparations proposals has always been where to get the funds. As the U.S. tax system is regressive and puts the largest burden on the poorest citizens, using taxes would likely put the burden upon people of color, including black residents in Evanston. So the question has always been, who will pay for reparations? Well, back in the year 2000, when members of the U.S. Congress began talking about the possibility of reparations, the source of funding was uncertain. However, with recreational marijuana dispensaries, suddenly places like Evanston had a new revenue stream from which they could get resources. But many advocates of reparations do not see Evanston's program as real reparations, as it is not a universal program for all black residents that's just a cash payout so they can do with that money whatever they want. They fear that if if little gets done because of the program's modest size, detractors of reparations will point to the suburb as proof of reparations not working and being a failed concept, or saying, hey, we've done, we already addressed reparations, so why do we need to address reparations again? It reminds me of McCain-Feingold, the campaign finance reform law, the bill that passed back in, I think it was still in the 20th century, which was supposed to address campaign finance. And as you can tell, it has not. Yet there is no discussion anymore of campaign finance reform. In a few minutes, we will find out what Evanston's historic reparations program is and is not, and whether it truly is reparations when we have the return of journalist Carrie Leiterson, who is on to discuss her article at the New Republic, Can Liberal Evanston, Illinois, Atone for Its Racist Past? The city is the first in the country to pass and begin to implement a reparations program. Changing laws to undo discrimination is one thing, but will white citizens really be willing to pay for it? Carrie is an author and assistant professor of journalism at Northwestern University. She is the author of five books, including Shoot Any Rocky, Art, Life, and Resistance Under the Gun, Revolt on Goose Island, which we discussed with her on this show, uh, The Chicago Window Factory Takeover, and What It Says About the Economic Crisis. Again, she discussed that on our show back in 2009. And Mayor 1%, Rahm Emanuel, and the rise of Chicago's 99%, which we talked about with Carrie the last time she was on way back in 2013. You can find out more about Carrie at her website, carrieleiterson.net. That's L-Y-D-E-R-S-E-N, K-A-R-I-L-Y-D-E-R-S-E-N.net. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host. Chuck Mertz producing is Dan Hill. Dan, 
Thanks to you and Alex Jerry, who produced earlier this week for filling in for Lindsey Gorey, who is the uh, latest member of our crew to come down with COVID. So what's new about you, Dan? Not much. It's a brisk fall day. It's lovely outside, yeah. isn't it? You hey. know, you know, it's really fall. It's when everybody starts talking about it. <laughs> I see. Saying stuff like that. Saying stuff like that's how you know it's fall. Yeah. So you don't have to look at your calendar well, it gets anymore. Gets colder too. <laughs> hey, so uh, as somebody who has had COVID, how do you feel about uh, so many people saying, including Joe Biden, that uh, the pandemic is over? I don't feel great about it. it sounds like <laughs> Lindsay's Not more or great. less okay, but I guess her roommate got it real bad. Oh, really? I got it real bad. I hear about people getting it real bad. Yeah, me and too. And there's long COVID. I know. Do you have long COVID, do you think? I don't know. How do I How do I sound? Uh, <laughs> you Am sound I firing fun. on all cylinders? Yeah, you sound great. For I... the rest of my life, I'll get to ask myself that question. Am I, am I an idiot or is it just long COVID? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a bumper sticker you might want to have made. Hey, let's make some money. I do know people who have long COVID and it is miserable. So mm. uh, I can connect you with them and they can tell you if you have any of those symptoms. I actually thought on Tuesday, I had a really slight fever, like 99. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, am I getting COVID? And it wasn't. It was just my freakish. The tests are expensive now at CVS. They're like 15 bucks a pop. Hell yeah. Now the price gouging begins. Jeez Louise. I know. And by the way, thank you, Safe, for saying jeez Louise. It's a phrase I haven't heard for a while. (laughs) I'm very Midwestern. (laughs) I know. I say it too. Uh, I also say Judas Priest. I say Jiminy Crickets. Jiminy Crickets. There you go. Without like any sarcasm i am just saying it (laughs) (laughs) the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want this is hell t-shirt the tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug the trucker's kit i gotta tell them what it is oh yeah that's right i forgot to ask what the hell it's right here (laughs) dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell this week's question from hell is with gas prices in european (laughs) currencies in free fall what's your oh where's your next vacation taking you where are you going for vacation now that gas prices high and european currencies low so again the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the this is hell t-shirt the tote bag the face mask the face covering the coffee mug the teachers the teachers trucker's cap i'd like to have a teacher's cap maybe we should have a mortar board that we have this is hell mortar board this winter be or the winter beanie or uh toque if you prefer as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you'll find all the ways you can help out completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page you you can direct message it to us at this is hell radio you can send it during our final show final hour of uh, this week's show at this is hell radio at gmail.com or, but we got to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff offers the super true tale of the capitalist who gave birth to a blue whale. We got an email sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com immediately following our conversation yesterday with Hadas Tier on a left response to inflation, which is an amazing conversation. Everybody should check it out. Not my part of it, but Hadas's part. Martin F. writes, Hi, Chuck. Currently reading a book called The Reactionary Mind by Corey Robin, a political science professor at Brooklyn College. It offers a psychological profile of what makes people adhere to conservative beliefs, i.e. a belief in the superiority of a hierarchical society and the psychological benefits that individuals get from being at the top of that hierarchy. And I believe Corey would make an interesting guest on your show. 
Martin then immediately sends a second email where he says, Seems like you already had Corey on as a guest. Whoops, my bad. And it seems like we did have Corey on when that book came out in October 2017 because we did have Corey on the show in October 2017. The only reason I'm mentioning uh, the email is because Martin gives us a great opportunity to point everyone back to that interview we had with Corey Robin on his outstanding book, an interview you can find at thisishell.com when you search on Robin. We also got an email from... Lindsay Gorey, who is currently recovering from COVID. Lindsay gives us a heads up on a past guest on the show who has a new book coming out early next year. Lindsay writes, just saw Jenny O'Dell wrote another book and that you interviewed her about her last one. would be very cool to have her on again. Jenny's new book is called uh, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. According to her publisher's webpage, Saving Time is a radical argument that we are living on the wrong clock, one that tells us time is money, and that there are other possibilities of experiencing time that offer bold, hopeful possibilities for ourselves and the planet from the New York Times bestselling author of How to Do Nothing. And Lindsay is correct. Jenny was on the show back in May of 2019 to talk about how to do nothing, resisting the attention economy. And you can find that interview again at thisishell.com when you search on Odell, O-D-E-L-L. L. That book was selected by listeners as one of their favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell back in 2019, as was Corey's book back in 2017. Next week, we will be featuring another book that was selected as a listener favorite in 2019, and we will be telling you more about that at the end of today's show. You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com with your constructive and or destructive criticism, as well as guest and topic suggestions. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Coming up... Our conversation with Kerry Leiterson on Evanston's historic reparations program that some argue may not be reparations. Dan will be sharing some some more of your uh, answers to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is, with gas prices in European currencies in free fall, where is your next vacation taking you? With gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where is your next vacation taking you? We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for our subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. As I said earlier, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's Moment of Truth, and we'll tell you who uh, we have scheduled to be on the show next week. All of this coming up here on This Is Hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is Hell, the Chicago suburb of Evanston, Illinois, where we have been broadcasting from for over 26 years, is engaging in a historic reparations project to address this long history of racism and discrimination against its black residents. But how historic is it? And is it even reparations here to help us figure all of that out? We are very happy to have the return of journalist Carrie Leiterson, who wrote the New Republic article, Can Liberal Evanston, Illinois, Atone for Its Racist Past? You can find out more about Carrie at our website, carrieleiterson.net. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Carrie. Thank you. It's fun to be here again. I know. I've got a huge smile on my face because I'm so glad to hear from you. It's been so long. Nine years. Right. Holy the cow. Flies. Exactly. Yep. There's been a pandemic. There's been a couple of wars, I think. It's, uh. Uh, so you start by writing, the fence may not seem momentous. 
But its symbolism is deep. It adds dignity and definition to a small grassy yard that is full of memories. It's where Ramona Burton's young son drove in his red toy convertible, where she and her husband Edward barbecued steaks, where they raised AKC uh, German shepherd puppies like she, who was bashful at first but became the wildest thing in the world. Burton and her husband bought the one-story brick home 46 years ago, and she's lived there ever since, surrounded by family photos since her husband, uh, Edward, passed away in 1993. Along with the fence, Burton recently got crucial roof and chimney repairs. She is thrilled with the improvements, but the investment also represents something larger. It is a tangible product, one of the first, in fact, of Evanston, Illinois' ascendancy as the first municipality in the country to implement reparations for racial discrimination. So what form, Carrie, are these reparations taking? Are people receiving money to do with as they please? Are they getting grants to do home repairs and improvements? Is it in the form of credit? What constitutes uh, Evanston's uh, reparation program? Yeah, so on the most basic level, um, the first stage, the reparations initiative that Evanston has launched um, is meant to be a $10 million project. And I think they hope and plan that it'll become even bigger than that. But the initial um, uh, phase of it is $10 million. And then the first step in that has been um, a total $400,000 project awarding 16 recipients, $25,000 grants specifically for housing. So um, it's specifically for people who own homes and the money can be used to make home repairs or pay off their mortgage. Um, so that's, you know, it's basically $25,000 toward a home, or it can also be used to, to buy a home. Um, well, it's, someone has to be in a homeowner currently. So, you know, essentially for their mortgage. Um, so, you know, it's a pretty small start, but um, it uh, there's so much we can talk about, including some of the really interesting points you brought up in your, your intro. Um, but basically, the idea is that this program is to address what Evanston's government did in the past um, to discriminate against Black people. So it's not specifically addressing slavery because Evanston itself didn't do that. Of course, the whole economy and existence of Evanston is, you know, related to um, to uh, inequity and uh, uh, the availability of a domestic workforce um, in its early days that was because of slavery, a result of slavery. Um, so it's all tied together, but the goal of Evanston's reparations is to address the discrimination that happened um, that was perpetrated by Evanston. And uh, after a, a pretty uh, comprehensive stakeholder driven process, basically community meetings and a lot of discussion, they decided that housing would be the first way, the first kind of prong where they would try to start to make amends. So how democratic was this process? You said that there were these meetings. Was there ever like a referendum that citizens voted on? How democratic was the process of getting these reparations put into place? You know, I would have to say it was pretty um, democratic. The whole process, um, you know, I went into it maybe being a little skeptical, um, like probably a lot of people are just hearing the basic details. Um, but I have to say I came out pretty um, inspired and impressed by this whole effort and really just the fact that, you know, this is the first place in the country that just did something. I mean, I think one of the reasons that it, so few reparations initiatives have happened on any front anywhere is the enormity 
of the um, the issues and the challenge, and that becomes kind of paralyzing. And this um, initially small group of leaders in Evanston just didn't let that stop them and went ahead and did something. And they're the first ones to say that it's not perfect and it's not it can't atone for the discrimination in Evanston, no less for slavery in the bigger picture. But they just wanted to do something to get the ball rolling. So um, that's context to say that I think the process wasn't perfect, but was um, pretty participatory and democratic. They had community meetings. They had a lot of discussions. They had a number of different ordinances that actually passed in city council, the sort of different steps along the along the way, including hashing out the plan for the initial stage. Um, and they've had, uh, they have monthly reparations committee meetings that people can tune into. They were all on Zoom. I think they're still on Zoom. They were all on Zoom and recorded during the pandemic. So, you know, it was easy for people to see what they were doing and to comment. Um, so I do feel like, and there's been plenty of criticism, which, you know, is part of that process. So, um, I feel like it's been a, a pretty impressive and pretty open and democratic process. So you went to Northwestern University, which is in Evanston. You now teach at Northwestern. What was your reaction when this was proposed and when it was finally implemented? You said at first you were a little bit skeptical, but did reparations surprise you? Or is this something you completely expected to happen in Evanston, of all cities in the United States, that Evanston would be the first to implement reparations? Did that surprise you in any way? Well, I mean, Evanston is famous for being a, you know, liberal and proudly diverse um, town or small city. So, you know, in that sense, it's not surprising at all. Um, but, you know, it's kind of surprising that it happened anywhere because again it is such a um I mean the you know it's the ball is rolling in many other cities partly because of Evanston's example and the leadership of Robin Rue Simmons and other people involved with the Evanston effort um but you know it is a pretty tough thing to get something like this done anywhere so um in that sense maybe it's a little bit surprising but uh I think one of the things that was maybe surprising or not was that um there wasn't really any at least outright um, opposition from white people in Evanston, um, like you probably would have in other places. Uh, a lot of the criticism actually came from Black residents who weren't against the concept, but more the details and, you know, had criticisms about the way it's being carried out and the scale and all of that. Um, and people of other races had those criticisms too, but there wasn't really any sort of racist outright um, opposition to the concept of reparations. Um, but then again, it is still, you know, somewhat limited. And the funding source right now is just from the marijuana uh, cannabis tax in addition to voluntary donations. So, you know, I would love to see in Evanston and other places um, as a town puts more skin in the game, you know, raises taxes or otherwise, um, you know, has people make small sacrifices in the city budget or in their own taxes to fund more comprehensive reparations, you know, that's when you may see even liberal places having um, a different reaction. So, you know, that's something I'd, I'd love to see. Uh, I'd be interested to see play out in, in many places really more, you know, you can only do reparations to this scale that it's going to be funded. Um, yeah. Do you think these reparations would not have happened if it wasn't for 
uh, marijuana dispensaries opening up that can uh, that can fund they can give the resources towards repara- reparations if it wasn't for these reparations not being universal being this kind of uh, select group of uh, people who are re- receiving them through a lottery process they all win the lottery but they you know that's a through a lottery process through a requirement process D- do you think that this could have happened without the resources from marijuana and without making maybe concessions, if you will, to the public so it doesn't seem like everybody's getting money? Yeah, um, the the people pushing the initiative and the support for it in Evanston as a whole, I mean, were pretty powerful. So I think they would have figured out some way to do it regardless. But the cannabis tax was a really convenient and good way to start since it was this new source of funding. And people are still, you know, there are still trade-offs because that tax would have gone to, I think, the general fund if it wasn't going to reparations. But, um, you know, it was an, it's not taking money away from some existing pot of money. And there's also some good symbolism because, of course, Black people have suffered more, been um, uh, discriminated against through the war on drugs for so long. So, you know, there's a little bit of um, poetic justice in that money going to the reparations. Um, Yeah, so I think it would have happened anyway. And, you know, on the cannabis front, uh, it is actually surprising how much money is coming in from the cannabis tax, even with Evanston only having one dispensary. But, you know, the whole cannabis program statewide has been kind of a mess in a lot of ways. And Evanston is allowed to have up to three dispensaries, but because of different bureaucratic snafus, it doesn't look like that will happen anytime soon. But um, if the uh, state gets its cannabis program more in order, you know, the amount that comes in from cannabis could also grow significantly. So is are, the, are all of Evanston's residents, are they happy with the idea of maybe getting not only one marijuana dispensary as it has right now, but getting three? Is that is that an obstacle to getting more resources for reparations that people may just not want to have more marijuana dispensaries in Evanston? You know, I haven't covered that issue specifically, the cannabis piece of it too much in Evanston. Um, And I'm sure there's some people that are opposed, but it does seem like the whole dispensary rollout in Chicago and Evanston has been pretty smooth. I didn't gather that there's a lot of opposition or a lot of problems with new dispensaries. I think it's more on the um, the bureaucracy on the state level with licenses being released and with that whole complicated process. I think that's where the bottleneck is. I don't gather that many people would have a big problem with more dispensaries and um, you know certainly the funding would help continue to expand the reparations possibilities. So is targeting housing discrimination, is that just the first step of this reparations program? Will it be tackling other forms of discrimination against black residents or has that not been completely figured out right now because they're just focusing right now on housing discrimination? Yeah, so the idea was first housing and those, you know, 16 people have already gotten it. And then they did decide in July to, as the money comes in, to keep awarding those grants to more people, especially because a lot of them are older, you know, to try to get those grants out as quickly as possible. It's It may be that another grant or two has even been awarded since I last checked in. Um, so, you know, the housing part will continue with more grants to 
all the people who qualified for those grants. And then through the community discussions, they came up with other focus areas, including education and economic development and culture and um, history and finances. So those will be future areas that are targeted and you know, a similar process to how housing was targeted. So is this more than simply symbolic? Because I think people that might be another criticism that people have of this, that it's not going far enough. Do you think it will have an impact on racism and racist business practices in Evanston more generally? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting angles to it. I mean, on one hand, maybe it is pure, I, you know, probably any reparations are are largely symbolic because there's just no way you can um, undo or fully repair, you know, if you're talking about for Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, I mean, things the U.S. has done in foreign countries, you just can't roll back the clock on all this horrible stuff. So, you know, I don't know that there's any reparations that's fully not that you know that goes beyond being symbolic um in a sense uh but i mean symbolism is really powerful and for the individuals who are directly benefiting from this program it's really powerful um you know it kind of gets to the question of what is symbolism but part of that is the discussions it's sparking and um you know there's still discrimination of course in evanston um I think the discussions, uh, and even more so if the reparations program gets bigger and people actually do have to, you know, put more skin in the game, put more in some form, more of their own money or their own, you know, um, themselves on the line a little bit more, you know, that will bring the harder discussions to the surface even more so. And, and that can be really difficult, but in is always a really important and ultimately healthy thing. So, I mean, that has started already, just learning about uh, the discrimination that Evanston itself perpetrated in the past, I think has been really valuable for people and um, examining, you know, it's been, a, and there's been racial tension in Evanston, you've probably covered around the, the schools um, in particular and in, in other ways. So, you know, just the more that you have these issues in, in the public consciousness and you have some lens or some spark to uh, have these difficult discussions, I mean, that all is important toward trying to reduce racism and discrimination. And as you point out, that when it comes to the not too or you know not there very long ago, a very recent, in fact, uh, problems with racism in Evanston. You write that the median income in Evanston's main black enclave is just over half the city's median income, and black residents are much less likely than white residents to own their own homes. For example, meanwhile, racial tensions still simmers especially around the schools. In May of this year, three nooses were found near Haven Middle School. Bitter debates over fights at Haven have pitted largely white parents worried about their children's safety against black parents and students who feel criminalized. Latino families have said they feel ignored, including by a black principal. Do you think those tensions, the tensions like those at uh, Haven Middle School, are in any way related to the reparations program? Are they the result of Evanston being the first city in the country to implement reparations? Did that fuel those tensions? Hello. Hello. Did you hear me, Carrie? Uh, now I do. I lost you for a second. That's okay. I don't know what happened. That's okay. So do you think that those uh, those tensions at Haven Middle School are related in any way to the reparations? No, I mean, not in any way caused or exacerbated uh, by the reparations, not really directly related, but 
you know, they're all part of, um, I mean, it, it shows that obviously uh, race hasn't been, you know, even in nice liberal inclusive Evanston today, um, the legacy of racism and discrimination and inequity, you know, is still playing out in different ways. Um, the same thing the reparations are meant to address. So, yeah. So you also write that the village that would become Evanston was founded in the mid-1800s by elites fleeing the pollution and social strife of Chicago. In 1851, Methodist leaders, including John Evans, founded Northwestern University, followed by the Northwestern Female College in 1855. Upper-class and influential residents, including Francis Willard, famous leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, exalted Evanston as a bastion of intellectualism, religion, morality, and gorgeous greenery. And I believe that the founders of uh, Evanston were also abolitionists. Do you think that that background, that history in any way had an impact on Evanston being the first city in the country to offer a reparations program? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, for sure. Like, from what I understand, from the very founding in the early days, Evanston did pride itself on being liberal and being diverse and being progressive. Um, so, you know, it is kind of fascinating and ironic that even during the decades where Evanston had that reputation and people, you know, I think probably really patted themselves on the back for for being so progressive, um, those were the same decades that all this discrimination in housing and other uh, and you know outright segregation pretty similar to how you had segregation anywhere else um that was happening at the same time so you know there was this dissonance where white people were able and there were plenty of white people i'm sure who opposed the segregation and the discrimination at the time um too but you know you could have this image as a liberal progressive anti-racist place even at the same time that you had segregation and really blatant housing discrimination and you mentioned that between roughly 1910 and 1940, during the Great Migration, the population of, Evan of uh, Black residents in Evanston grew to more than 6,000 people, and the great majority were forced to live in the small triangle between a railroad track and canal that was has remained the core of Evanston's Black community through the present day. Black families were highly likely to own their homes, but the lack of housing stock led to overcrowding and rising prices. Amid Evanston's deep segregation, a nonetheless thriving black economy developed. There existed a black taxi service, a black newspaper, black lawyers and doctors, and countless other black-owned businesses, along with multiple popular black churches with no nearby hospital that would admit black people. Black doctors Isabella Garnett, Garnett and Arthur Butler created a clinic and medical training center in their Evanston home. Black people were not welcome in the Evanston YMCA on Grove Street, but black youth flocked to a YMCA that opened on Emerson Street in 1914. Did that uh, economic power, did that economic success, did that translate into black political power as well? Was the foundation of the recent reparations policy a long history of a thriving black economy that was backed up by political power? Yeah, I mean, so... Um... It's interesting with the, I, I think this happened pretty much everywhere. Um, the segregation and the discrimination, you know, ended up, um, people made a, a thriving economy and, you know, their own kind of autonomous um, economic and, and cultural center in, in the areas that they were relegated to. And then 
over time, um, even at the same time that segregation is being dismantled, uh, those centers of culture and power were, you know, attacked through gentrification and other forces. I mean, you see that in Bronzeville and Chicago and it's just so many places. So, you know, that's kind of ironic that what the Black community built in the areas where they were forced to live um, became really powerful and thriving. And then, you know, even that was attacked, uh, even as racism was supposedly improving. Um, but anyway, in terms of political power, um, I mean, Lorian Morton was Evanston's first Black mayor, and um, it was um, Black leaders on city council who kind of drove this effort, including um, Peter Braithwaite, who's Jamaican-American, and Lionel Jean-Baptiste, who's Haitian-American, so, you know, also shows the diversity of um, Black communities in Evanston. Um, so I think it's safe to say that uh, there's a lot of powerful Black political leadership in Evanston. Um, and that, that everywhere, uh, I mean, black political power grew out of um, centers where, you know, where where they were uh, working together and, and concentrated because of the discrimination that happened. And that uh, discrimination went on uh, after even uh, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court ruling, as you point out. And you say that, uh, you know, there's uh, black parents and other leaders demanded that Evanston schools be meaningfully desegregated. And the school board president passed a uh, resolution in 1964 promising to do so, then adopted a desegregation plan two years later. So now we're up to... 1966, when Brown v. Board of Education again passed in 1954, an ambitious and chaotic busing program ensued, disliked by both white and black families, especially since it forced black students to do most of the traveling and made it impossible for them to walk home for lunch as their white peers did. New school superintendent George C. Coffin, a white New England transplant and cousin of the civil rights leader and Yale University chaplain, the Reverend William Sloan Coffin Jr., hired black teachers and staff for previously white schools and instituted teacher training and curriculum overhauls to root out racism. It proved too much for many white residents. The standoff became a national symbol, and despite the NAACP and multiple other groups passionately arguing, organizing, and demonstrating on Coffin's behalf, he was removed by the school board in 1970. How bad did that standoff get? Did that standoff become violent? Did it become, uh, you know, really horrible before the before a real program for desegregation happened in Evanston schools? Yeah, I read a lot of interesting history about that period. Um, there's a great book called Friends Disappear by an Evanston resident um, and some other uh, reports in um, Dino Rob, the hist uh, historian Dino Robinson did a lot of writing. He did a, the base um, of all the archival research and just comprehensive research and reports that helped lay the foundation for the reparations. But anyway, um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff written about that period in Evanston's history with the schools in particular. And and yeah, it was really bitter. Um, and it it was never uh, you know, solved all in one fell swoop. It was um it really revealed along with you know that housing struggles, it really revealed how much um racism was, you know, just below the surface or not even below the surface. Um, even though, you know, Evanston was 
theoretically a, a liberal in place even then. Um, so yeah, and that, you know, one of the outgrowths of, of that whole tumultuous period was that foster school, which was the school where the majority of black students went um, and was really beloved and an important um, place in the community that was closed. And there'd been a, a battle then for years to reopen it and um, revive that legacy, not the legacy of the discrimination, but the legacy of the all the positive things that have been built at Foster. And just this, I think it's just this year, um, which may be a direct result of the reparations discussions, uh, they did decide to reopen Foster. So that's something that a lot of people are happy about. Um, but yeah, the, um, I mean, issues, you know, schools, people are, their true colors, I probably come out or their most intense emotions when it involves their kids. And, you know, that was where a lot of the, uh, uh, racism really played out and, and not just racism, but also just how difficult it is to do these things. Like the, you know, even the best intentions with the school desegregation, um, had, had effects that, actually hurt black families and were, you know, it, it, it's a good um, example for the reparations too. Like, it's just really hard to, uh, even if people are all on the same page, you know, in terms of what they want to do philosophically, like to really administratively figure out a good program to address something like racism and discrimination is really tricky. Um, and one of the reasons that it often doesn't happen. And, you know, one of the reasons I think it is really impressive that they just forged ahead and, and did something here. But as you point out, the program's roots go back a full two decades. In 2002, City Council member Lionel Jean-Baptiste sponsored a resolution which the Evanston City Council approved urging Congress to pass H.R. 40, U.S. Representative John Conyers' bill, calling for a federal commission to study the impacts of slavery and possibility of reparations. But again, this is long before the introduction of legal recreational marijuana in Evanston. Was the original plan that this would be financed by the federal government or state government or through increased local taxes? And did the idea not take off until recreational ma marijuana was legalized in Illinois? Yeah, so it's sort of two separate things because HR 40 is still on the table. You know, the call for federal reparations, of course, is is still on the table and um, is being pushed, you know, really strenuously by advocates. I mean, whether that can actually pass in Congress anytime soon um, doesn't seem too promising, but uh, they're sort of two separate things. So, you know, at the time, Alderman or City Councilman John Baptiste um, passed this resolution city council did supporting the federal effort and that would be to address slavery and the the ripple effects of slavery on a federal level um and and i think it is worth saying you know i've i've been pretty emphatic in how impressed i am just personally by the evanston initiative but um it is important to note um i talked to the economist william a darity and he made really powerful points he's been pretty critical of evanston's reparations and made the points that um you mentioned in your intro that you know this is such a huge thing and reparations need to be so huge that smaller efforts might dilute that uh that push or might um uh, take away from the the gravity and the momentousness of what federal or what full reparations need to be. So, you know, that's an important point that's out there and um, a point that that other um, thought leaders have made too. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, the cannabis funding, um, 
I don't think we're going to fund federal reparations with cannabis, especially since it's not legal federally. Uh, uh, so that, yeah, it's sort of two separate discussions, but, you know, for any reparations, um, of course, funding is, is where it's really where talk, you know, becomes reality and where people don't, can't just say nice things, but have to actually be willing to sacrifice, you know, something else to try to, uh, address the wrongs of the past. We are speaking with journalist Carrie Leiterson, who has a new article out at The New Republic, Can Liberal Evanston, Illinois, Atone for Its Racist Past? You can find out more about Carrie at her website, carrieleiterson.net. You mentioned Salim Wakil, longtime uh, political activist, journalist, and former Black Party member in Chicago, past guest on our show, agreed that these piecemeal attempts diminish the power of the overall demand for reparations. They diminish the grandeur. But as the house, the homeowner, Ramona Burton, might argue, they're giving her immediate help in improving her quality of life right now. Did you ever get a sense that this is a kind of payoff, hush money, to keep black residents and their elected leaders quiet about further assistance, further discussions meant to address, well, more than a century of racial discrimination in Evanston? Definitely not. Um, the people that got the reparations were definitely not out there complaining about racism. Um, the ones I talked to all love Evanston, loved growing up there despite all the racism. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely not that in any way. It really is um, a, you know, a proactive thing that people decided to do. Northwest, you also write that Northwestern University did not respond to questions about Evanston's reparations initiative, but pointed to a racial justice initiative that includes grants for projects like a Northwestern Athletics summer camp for young black men from Evanston and the engineering schools work with minority women tech entrepreneurs. And uh, you mentioned earlier in your article about, you know, is Northwestern University going to kick in funds to support these reparations? In your opinion, how much does a Northwestern University summer camp for young black men and the engineering schools work with minority women tech entrepreneurs amount to repairing the racial discrimination black residents have endured in Evanston since the city's founding in the mid-19th century? Is it better than nothing, but not much at all? Um, I mean, that was, you know, I work at Northwestern, I love Northwestern, but that was my feeling. Um, I hope Northwestern's doing other things too that I don't know about or, you know, discussing what they'll do more on the reparations front or in their relationship with Evanston. Um, I know the reparations leaders are really disappointed that Northwestern hasn't kicked in funds or participated in some way. Um, you know, Northwestern's is totally intertwined with the whole founding and existence of Evanston and Northwestern doesn't pay taxes. So, um, and there were, you know, Northwestern itself didn't allow black students to live on campus until 1947. Um, so it does seem like, uh, there's, uh, Northwestern, you know, could and should be doing a lot on this front, um, I could see the argument that this particular reparations initiative, uh, you know, maybe 
that's not the place for Northwestern to participate directly in that, but it seems like in some form or other, um, they could be doing more. And, uh, you know, the amount of money we're talking about in the reparations initiative from the cannabis tax is still relatively small in the big picture. So, you know, a big institution, whether it's a university or a foundation or a wealthy individual, um, could, you know, could double, triple the budget for the reparations initiative with a kind of grant that wouldn't, you know, that they'd barely notice um, was gone. So I, I would uh, hope and maybe expect that, you know, from different entities, there would be more big chunks of money flowing in in the future. I have spoken with uh, North or with Evanston homeowners, with Evanston residents, and there does always seem to be uh, you know, people very up, who are very upset that Northwestern University does not pay any taxes, that that has led to a kind of divide between residents and the university. Do you think that this lack of participation within this reparations program is in any way, or have you seen any signs of this exacerbating that divide between residents and the university? Um, I mean, I know the reparations leaders I interviewed are definitely frustrated and definitely want to see Northwestern participate. Um, whether, you know, regular citizens have thought about that, um, I, I mean, a lot a lot of regular citizens don't necessarily understand the reparations initiative as a whole. So, you know, they might not know whether Northwestern's involved or not, but um, uh, it does seem like uh, getting involved in some form with reparations could help Northwestern improve those relationships with the community in general. Again, you teach at Northwestern University. We broadcast from Northwestern University's radio station. Was the university in any way upset with your reporting on this issue or during your invest investigation? And should I be concerned about our radio show staying on WNUR? <laughs> I mean, not that I know of. The the uh, spokespeople were helpful in sending me a statement. And uh, the journalism school is absolutely wonderful. I love working there. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, my colleagues have read the story yet, but um Everyone there has been so supportive of, of this story. And we have students uh, or graduates working at the Evanston Roundtable who've done some of the leading coverage on the reparations initiative and that that uh, paper as a whole. Um, so I don't think uh, it's something that people are afraid to talk about. I mean, the debate or afraid to have discussed, you know, the debate is one of the things that's been so healthy for probably the whole community. In the area where black residents have been forced to live, in this triangle area, you mentioned uh, how Tasha Wil Wilson coaches the girls um, dashing around the same basketball courts where she played as a kid three decades ago in Mason Park. Wilson, 44, grew up in a pretty blue house on Florence Avenue across the street, and her cousin Jackie White lived next door. The block was the eastern edge of the black neighborhood in those days. Wilson remembered uh, immediately to the east uh, are notably more grandiose homes with sprawling lush gardens. Just west of the park is the former railroad viaduct that makes the edge of the Fifth Ward, which stretches west, full of tightly spaced, modest bungalows and apartments of brick and siding. You then quote Wilson as she was pointing to a waste transfer station as the tired and happy basketball players packed up, saying, that's the garbage dump. They moved all the black folks between the railroad and the canal. That's kind of the way Evanston is laid out. So how much is where black residents live in Evanston determined by a sense of environmental racism? Is the triangle a site of toxic contamination that might be a threat to black residents' public health? 
Yeah, I mean, that's um, definitely an issue. And actually, I mentioned a Medill graduate at the roundtable. Um, several of them have done uh, some great stories on that exact issue on the environmental injustice that exists in Evanston um, with industry and, you know, waste issues that still exist in the Fifth Ward that other uh, Evanston neighborhoods aren't exposed to. So that's definitely an issue. And um, even going to school as an undergrad at Northwestern myself and living in Evanston, I really hadn't been in the fifth ward much. And, um, you know, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a great and gorgeous community. So it's not like it looks bad in any way, but the disparity, um, you know, in terms of the size of the yards and the um, the infrastructure is is really striking. Um, so, you know, when I did spend more time there for someone who had lived in Evanston before, it was really uh, notable. It was really striking to see the, the legacy still of all that housing discrimination. And you write that resident Ruth Simmons thinks the reparations initiative and its ripple effects can help mitigate such discrimination and build the fortunes of black owned businesses. What are the ripple effects that have been seen to be mitigating discrimination? Well, I mean, so far it's, you know, these grants, which will help people hold on to their homes and pass them on to the next generation and make improvements. And, you know, as as it expands, um, people could continue to improve their homes in the Fifth Ward or maybe buy homes elsewhere in, in Evanston if they want, you know, partly as a result of that assistance. And um, then as, as they address economic developments, um, that could, of course, help help businesses survive and thrive in the fifth ward or elsewhere. Um, so, you know, it's all a kind of um, a slow and amorphous process, I would think. But, you know, so is everything in, in urban development and in trying to address these kinds of issues. So I don't doubt that uh, it may not be anything that you can very directly quantify a humongous impact in 10 years. But, um, you know, I think it makes sense that there there will be all these different ripple effects as this plays out. You're right. The future stages of reparations are meant to address other priority areas identified through community meetings, namely economic development, education, finances, in history and culture. How exactly that will be done will be determined in a collective process unfolding over months and years. And you then quote the national reparations leader uh, by the last name of Daniels saying, it must be the injured party that has to say, this is what will make me whole. This is what will do the repair. Fully understanding that in most instances, there will never ever be quite full repair. So is reparations is is it a horizon, something to aim for, but can never be fully achieved, at least in the understanding of those who are fighting for reparations in Evanston, kind of like objectivity in journalism? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I like the horizon description. Uh, I don't know if uh, I'm not sure about the objectivity. Uh, <laughs> I just I thought I'd throw already, that in there at the right, end. Right, right. I think we already debunked that objectivity was even uh, possible or or even something you should strive for since it's not possible, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I like the way you described that and um yeah, I got the chance to do a project with students and with um, some amazing artists and and Iraq military veterans about reparations for torture at Guantanamo and and torture by Chicago police officers. And, you know, it kind of had the similar feeling like you just can never um, nothing can compensate for some of these things that are so horrible. Uh, but 
that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and shouldn't do things that, you know, move in that direction and have that spirit underlying them. And you also quote uh, the former Panther turned columnist Salim Moakil saying the most difficult part is to convince people they must sacrifice some prospective mm-hmm. individual well-being for what will be the collective well-being. The pandemic convinced a lot of people that we can manufacture economic resources a lot more easily than we thought and distribute them efficiently if we really want to. So in your opinion, does Evanston really want to? Do you think white Evanston residents really want to improve collective well-being? Because there's a lot of pushback against anything that is considered in the collective well-being or a common good, you know, generally across the United States. So does Evanston, all of Evanston, in your opinion, want to commit to a long-term program of reparations? And if they do or do not, why do you feel that way or not? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. And I, I love how Salim Moakal laid that out. And, you know, you see that on a federal level, too, uh, how we find money for stuff like supporting Ukraine and the pandemic and these really crucial things. We find that money when we need it. So, you know, is addressing racism and the legacy of slavery that important? Like you would certainly think so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know Evanston well enough to fully answer that question. Probably no one person does. But I think that's what will really, you know, really be the next stage and really be interesting to see is um, to what extent are people really willing to um, invest in this and, you know, more actively participate or or make uh, trade-offs to help try to address these past wrongs and ongoing ones. One last question for you, Carrie. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with journalist Carrie Leitison, who returned to This Is Hell to discuss her article at The New Republic, Can Liberal Illinois Atone for Its Racist Past? You can find out more about Carrie at her website, carrieleiterson.net. That's K-A-R-I-L-Y-D-E-R-S-E-N.net. So this question from Elle is a little bit silly. I got it. (laughs) So you write the whether aging ancestors get reparations in their lifetime depends oddly on how quickly locals buy cannabis. And the ancestors that you're talking about are the people who qualify for these reparations, these original set of reparations. So Uh does buying weed at Evanston's only dispensary help black residents? Because if it does... When I get an up-to-date state ID, which is a very difficult thing to do during the pandemic, should I buy weed in Evanston? If you're going to, why not? Sure. See? It's a pretty easy question. It was a pretty easy question. My questions from hell this week have been pretty bad. So, Carrie, it's great to hear your voice again. It's always great to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you again. And uh, take care. I'm going to be contacting you in the very near future. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Carrie. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. Man, my questions from hell this week. Just duds. It's really been driving me crazy. If you, what you just heard from Carrie Leiterson on Evanston's historic or not reparations or not program, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you finally realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly 
bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, with gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where's your next vacation taking you? Over at Facebook, No W said, at your service in front of a furnace, heat the rich. <laughs> Bogey G says, prison. <laughs> I think he's been there before. Oh, geez, going back. <laughs> Kim G said, not to Nebraska. All right, we know oh, okay. where she's not going. Mm. Good old Neil C says, bypassing Hope River, heading straight for Lake Despair. You know, Neil C came here all the way from Brooklyn, New York, to join us at the end. I didn't know he traveled that far. Yeah. I met him briefly. Yeah, really nice guy. He was having a really good time. Yes, he was. <laughs> all right. Over at uh, Twitter, we got Hypocrite Reader saying, through the doors of perception. <laughs> so somebody's going where I'm going. That's right. That's great. And Aldous Huxley. Yes. Turby McTurbyface says, OMG, now even the Americans are laughing at us. <laughs> kind of like that. Pat the Expat says, riding my bicycle from my home outside Stockholm to the North Cape of Norway and back. Okay. That'll be a trek. That's a huge trek. Queen. See you in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, Queequeg's Harpoon says, the exotic port city called The Couch by locals. <laughs> Uh, Joel G says Quebec City. The dollar to C dollar rates are great right now. And finally, Gregory Knopp says riding an old mufflerless diesel-powered snowmobile back and forth across the fragile Arctic Circle <laughs> ecosystem. That's the last habitat keeping the incomparably magnificent polar bears, Ursus maritimus, from extinction. USA! USA! <laughs> USA! It's kind of a short story. It's some flash fiction there. It is. From Gregory Knopp. By the way, uh, make sure everybody uh, go to 50 Flip Experiment. Dan yeah. Hill's website for his Issue comic book. Issue 30 is coming out you very soon. You have a huge fan in my house. Oh, yeah? Who's yes, that? My girly. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah, I thought she... somebody was squirreled away somewhere. <laughs> yeah, got somebody in the f- floorboards. <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, my girly absolutely loves oh. your comic book. That's very nice. I'll and then, send Issue 30 and, your way. And then some people came here for the party, and they said they didn't like me referring to my girly as my girly, well, and they sure explained that knows. to her, <laughs> and she said, whatever. Yeah, right. It had escaped her notice. <laughs> exactly. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, again, wins whatever piece of This Is Hell swag that you want. You can see all this stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same time, same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. So on Thursday's Patreon, it's my birthday on Monday, October 3rd. And this is a big one as I will be turning. Well, I'm not going to tell you how old because I was told by the original producer of this is hell to never reveal my age on the show. Andrew Duncan, who was also the uh, original lead guitarist and keyboardist of the band OK Go, once said that during a meeting with recording executives, I think they were at CBS, they told him and the other members of the band to never tell anyone your age and never reveal to anyone 
that you have a girlfriend. So now that I've said I have a, an uncommon law non-wife hundreds of times on the show, I might as well reveal my age, but the only way I'm going to be doing that is on Patreon. And while revealing my age tomorrow on Patreon, I will also be offering my own completely unauthorized autobiography. How can my own autobiography be unauthorized? Well, that's because it will not meet my standards of approval, as it will likely be very self-deprecating, if not humiliating and embarrassing. So why would I permit such an autobiography to be shared on Patreon? Because damn, we need Patreon subscribers. During my hospitalization, uh, which began in March and lasted for way too long, and now the recovery from that surgery that saved my life, uh, we lost about 12% of our subscribers, and only like 5% of them have come back since I returned to the show. I mean, I get it. Inflation is hurting everyone, and the job market is not as hot as it was seven months ago. So if you want to get your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host something for his birthday, I would suggest subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or increase your subscription rate because things are getting pretty tight around here. Also on Patreon, it's the cause of so much of our debt, and that is 15 to 20 years of paying something you might remember as... Long-distance phone bills. We spent around $20,000 during that time just to call guests and put them on air. And the call that cost us the most was from a conversation we had in September of 2007, about 15 years ago today, with then Harper's Magazine contributing editor Mackenzie Funk, who talked to us about his cover article in that month's issue of Harper's Magazine, Cold Rush, the coming fight for the melting north. Why was that call so expensive? Because we were talking with Mackenzie while he was on the top deck of the Healy icebreaker somewhere off the coast of Alaska. That call alone cost us $150. One call back then cost more than two months of cellular phone bills, which can call anywhere in the world at any time without any additional cost, but it was worth it. And his eyewitness account of the effects from climate change 15 years ago was worth it. And the whole rush to the north because people couldn't wait to get those resources. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you can also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. But you can only hear all of that you become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The capitalist who gave birth to a blue whale, who gave birth to a renunciate capitalist. 
the loudest, most obnoxious mass of Christians had come to the general agreement that the more Jesus loved you, the wealthier and more powerful he would make you in this world. He did this to balance out all the Muslims, Confucians, and other heathens. Satan in his nastiness rendered wealthy and powerful. The only explanation for the majority of wealthy, powerful people in the world not being Christian was that even though Jesus could easily win against the devil, sometimes he let the devil win by mistake or on purpose or just to keep everyone guessing. If the overall picture were simple to interpret, faith wouldn't be the test it was known to be. And so even under the simplistic, dogmatic doctrines of dominionist evangelical Christianity, there was room for confused outcomes. And thank God for that. Tom Brokaw was a simple millionaire news whisperer and fly fisherman who called the generation that profited most from the FDR public works program, in other words, an entire generation of welfare leeches, the greatest generation. Once, in late September of the year 2022, by the old TV guide calendar, he wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times. In it, he bragged about his friendship with, no, not postmodern Homer, David Letterman, Yvonne Chouinard, son of a froggy Canuck mechanic who reluctantly became an outdoor apparel tycoon. Brokaw, in an attempt to show how low he was slumming it by hanging out with a fellow millionaire, kept calling the guy a dirtbag, which was apparently some slang term rock-climbing skiers like to call each other and had not much to do with bags of dirt at all. He also referred to Chuinard's early life as a leisure sportsman, rock climber, and skier as hard scrabble, a term usually used to describe the lives of poor farmers. Rocks are indeed hard, and Chuinard probably found Scrabble a challenging game as a child, but that did not qualify his life as hard Scrabble. It's no surprise that Tom Brokaw, who coined the incorrect moniker Greatest Generation, should describe the life of an avid outdoorsman who became an apparel capitalist as hard scrabble. Tom Brokaw didn't really know what words meant. A survey of his coverage of U.S. foreign policy during his years as propaganda parrot confirms this. Brokaw wrote his piece entitled braggadociously, Ivan Chuinard is the founder of Patagonia. He's also my dirtbag friend. Shortly after Chuinard made loud news, by turning his company, Patagonia Incorporated, over to a non-profit pro-ecological consortium. They would still make Patagonia products in as sustainable a way as they could possibly do. But now 100% of the profits would go to supporting the work of grassroots environmental groups. Wealth inequality would not be one of the consortium's targets because only through capitalist wealth creation could Chouinard have amassed the money required to pay back the world, or what he considered the world, for the damage he'd reluctantly done by reluctantly becoming a reluctant CEO able to bring his friend Tom Broca on long hauls to Iceland, as Broca put it. Once again, painting luxury, i.e. a ride in a jet, as hard work, such as one might refer to a dog sled trek across the wild tundra. But then again, Brokaw thought standing in a river in waders, smoking cigars with David Letterman, was the equivalent of coaxing rice out of the bare earth. 
Also name-checked in the op-ed piece was Yvonne and Tom's close dirtbag friend, Doug Tompkins, another hard-scrabble sporty outdoorsman who founded the non-pretentiously French-named apparel company Esprit. Whereas Yvonne believed capitalism could be pursued responsibly, Doug walked away from capitalism, having amassed enough wealth to buy an entire region of South America and establish it as a wild preserve fiefdom, putting the land in trust despite the will of its human inhabitants like an absentee feudal lord. But that's how things had to be done back then, under the yoke of capitalism. Human communities had to rely on the goodwill of individual benevolent custodians of property distribution, policy, and wealth, the likes of FDR, Andrew Carnegie, and the owners of Costco. And if they weren't benevolent and possessed no goodwill, humans and everyone else were mered out of luck. One area Tompkins trust helped preserve was the Chiloe Island Corcovado Gulf region of Chilean Patagonia, a complex of cold water coral reefs, inland channels, archipelagos, fjords, fresh watersheds, and intermingling ocean currents. The region attracted increasing tourism, part of Tompkins' entrepreneurial plan to sustain the inhabitants whose ability to decide he'd usurped, and uh, the trend continued even after Tompkins' death in 2015 from hypothermia, resulting from a hardscrabble kayaking incident. It's unclear, however, if the Tompkins Trust understood the averse effects on blue whale reproduction caused by the increased noise from burgeoning ship traffic. The preservation of the zone's wildness overtook entrepreneurial development, though, enough to support the comeback of the blue whale population. One whale understood the situation very well. That whale's name, translated from blue whale song, was Florbity Glubblebubber. Florbity was born in Corcovado National Park and realized almost immediately that she was the reincarnation of Doug Tompkins himself. Blue whale mind activity exists most expressively in the part of consciousness that in humans is devoted to dreaming. Thus, Doug's widow, Chris, who oversaw much of the Trust's environmental preservation work before and after Doug's demise, was visited in a dream by Florbity in the whale's dream guise as Doug. Florbity Dream Doug held a series of seminars in the venue of Chris Tompkins' Unconscious. They were like TED Talks, but through the mixed media of dreamscape and whale song. The immersive discourses finally proved to Chris that the cultural and material logic of capitalism, whether for profit or for one couple's private idea of environmental preservation, was the problem. She had been trying to put out a fire by spraying it with lighter fluid. Chris Tompkins awoke one morning after the final night of the multi-night seminar of dreams, a changed woman. She immediately booked a tour of major cities of the world as the first convert to Cetacio Homo Sapianity. She also began to devolve the Tompkins holdings to local community land conservators, who in turn granted it to families of all types under conditions of responsible stewardship agreed on by a coalition of sustainable agriculture and ecological maintenance practitioners elected to non-contiguous terms of no more than three years. And that was how the apocalypse came to be limited to about half the disaster it could have been. Super true? Yes. 
so super true that you will not find a trace of it in the mainstream media of the time. Now, though, with the advent of dream song media immersion techno-ritual practice, we can all enjoy tales told by mushrooms, euphosiids, quarks, cabbages, quasars, and kings, from time immemorial to the far distant future. We no longer have to rely on the faulty and biased quackery of the likes of Tom Brokaw. The world is our singing oyster of knowledge and imagination. And this has been the moment of truth. Good day. Did you see people online complaining about this donation by the Patagonia owner uh, that this is just a tax dodge so he won't have to pay you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes? Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that, that got uh, debunked pretty fast. Yeah, I, th- I thought that that was going to happen because it just seemed like a kind of a knee-jerk response to it. How, you know, how, is, this, how is he going to profit from this? So, Well, I'm a knee-jerk. <laughs> hey Chuck, did you? I heard did you're you? a knee and thigh jerk. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I somebody told me I have restless leg sim- syndrome. Of course, she was sleeping next to me. And <laughs> That's right. <probably. laughs> I guess I should take her word for it. Um, Chuck, did you read about the Walled Lake shooting that guy, that nut, that QAnon guy in uh, Walled Lake, Walled Lake, Michigan, kind of down by Ann Arbor ish. Oakland County. Oh, that's right. It's up by Oakland County. So tell people what the hell happened. This is really creepy. Uh, you know, the guy was a QAnon guy, got sucked deeper and deeper into the conspiracies. His daughter is now, uh, I don't know if she's on a crusade, but she, she was immediately really like, these people, oh, I mean, my dad was a nice guy until they poisoned his mind or whatever. He just went deeper and deeper and got nuttier and nuttier and uh, shot her mom and her sister. And killed and them. Killed them. Yes, and killed them. And uh, she, luckily she wasn't there or she would have been killed too. And uh, he, if you look at a picture of him, he looks a little bit like a really demented, earnest, earnest, you know, what's his face? Oh yeah, guy. Uh, yeah, Ernest. Goes what a, on you know that yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. His name used to be Ernest. Yeah. <laughs> Ernest goes really... on vacation. Ernest does all those different movies. Ernest does massacres. Yeah, Ernest yeah. massacres his family. Yeah. Ernest goes to DC yeah. and tries to murder Mike Pence. Yeah, that was a horrible version of those movies. By the way, that was the. Oh least no, that was my favorite one. Oh, really? You really like well, that? Well, yeah, because you know, because they had that, um, they had that two pack. Uh, uh, hologram, yeah, that was, you know, was sort of involved in that kind of. He's the one who strangles Nancy Pelosi in yeah. her office. Yeah, that was really horrible. That was the worst part of the movie. I see, know. That I you... thought that was great. I found it completely believable. <laughs> Did you see it on the big screen in 3D? Of course not. What do I look like? A, a one of those, you know. People who don't believe in COVID? You know, at least, you know, with uh, 9-11 truthers, with any other conspiracy theorists, they're not going around and killing their family. You know? <laughs> it makes Maybe. It, well, I don't know maybe. what those guys, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't lost know track of a, yeah. a friend of mine who was a 9-11 truth, who is a 9-11 truther. I, don't, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I still keep tabs on him a little bit. But he was friends with Alex Jones, and he would always say, I keep telling Alex to chill out. Stop, you know, stop it with, and I was like, why, why are you even friends with them? <laughs> so I don't know what happened to him. I think he moved to New York, this friend of mine, not Alex Jones. I know what happened. <laughs> Damn, yeah. um, 
Oh, Chuck, by the way, my aunt, I, well, you know, I'm not just an employee of the very generous, this is hell, or, you know, not the media incorporated, but I am also a Patreon member. Oh, well, look at you. I have been a paying Patreon member since August because it's just easier. <laughs> it is just easier. See, it really is just easier. And uh, um, so so I, I don't know if that qualifies me to win the question from hell because my answer is a winning answer. What is it? It already won once. What's your winning answer this week? Where am I going on vacation? Yeah. The house on the rock. Oh, shut up. All right, <laughs> All right your mom. Until <laughs> You've already been beat to Uranus, if you know what I mean. Jeffy. <laughs> I do. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, God, what a chore. All right. All right. Love you. you. Love you. Bye. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell. And if there are any more answers, please share them with our listening audience. This week's question from hell is with gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where is your next vacation taking you? There aren't any new answers, but Ernest, that guy's name is Jim Varney. Jim Varney, that's it. That's it. Thank you for clearing that up. For sure. So the answers I like the most were hypocrite readers saying through the doors of perception because that's where I'm planning on vacationing in the very near future. Uh, Queequeg's Harpoon, simply because that's a great freaking name, but also because their response was the exotic port city called the couch by locals. Again, this week's question from Mel with gas prices and European currencies in freefall, where's your next vacation taking you? Neil Cohen says bypassing Hope River, heading straight for Lake Despair. Bogey saying prison, which is really an exceptional answer. Ariana R saying to Hurricane Ian's eye, soon the only safe spot in the state of Florida. Braden saying the living room, maybe the shed. David Rod saying 2251 West Devon Avenue, and I hope that all of you come to 2251 West Devon Avenue tonight, Wednesday night, as every Wednesday night. We have This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet, which is really a drink and think. I show up at about 6 p.m., and the whole thing is over around 10 p.m., so drop by again at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, this evening for This Is Hell office hours. Peter K. saying, to hell in a handbasket with Ginny Thomas property tag, which is pretty funny. Also, SLS saying, I might travel to the other end of my flat. Good times in England. And David S. with the most mature answer this week, I'm headed for Uranus. Or maybe I didn't pronounce that right. Uranus. So that makes this week's winner the timeliness of Ariana R.'s response her answer to this week's question from hell is spectacular again she replied she's going to hurricane ian's eye soon the only safe spot in the state of florida congratulations ariana just tell us what piece of this is hell merchandise you want and uh, that is available right now at this is hell.com when you click on support and we will get it in the mail post haste with, again, the question from hell, with uh, gas prices and European currencies in freefall, where is your next vacation taking you? Well, for me, my answer to this week's question from hell is gas prices and European currencies do not dictate my vacation plans. My vacation plans are always determined by 
family and family gatherings. My uncommon law, non-wife and I both get very little vacation time, three, sometimes if we're lucky, four weeks every year. And during those few weeks, we are always visiting family, which means visiting the lively Twin City area of Bloomington Normal in central Illinois. And yes, Normal Illinois is as lively as it sounds. Or going to Ann Arbor, Michigan for the holidays, which always includes a visit to not-so-pleasant Mount Pleasant, Michigan to see even more family. Not that I am complaining. I love my family. But it ain't gas prices or European currencies that have any impact on my vacation choices. For us, it's work, what little time we can get away, and family. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We really appreciate it. Dan, who are our guests scheduled to be on next week's show? Speaking of family. Next week's guests are going to be writer, researcher, and oral historian Lindsay Burgeon, author of Tree Thieves, Crime, and Survival in North America's Woods. Lindsay is a writer, oral historian, and 2018 National Geographic Explorer based in British Columbia. She writes about the environment and its entanglement with history, culture, and identity. Lindsay was supposed to be on a couple of weeks ago, but we had a scheduling issue at the very last minute. We weren't able to get her on, but she did send us a an autographed copy of her book which we gave out as a raffle prize during the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party so thank you very much Lindsay for rescheduling to be back on and for sending us the book who else is going to be on next week also returning to This Is Hell will be writer, theorist and recovering academic Sophie Lewis who will be on to discuss her new book on the day it will be published and that book is titled Abolish the Family A Manifesto for Care and Liberation You may remember Sophie being on the show back in July 2019 to talk about her book Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. You know, there's a listener of the show who I ran into downstairs during This Is Hell Office Hours, and after that interview, this is somebody who is very proud to refer to himself to identify as a family man, and he said that that he, he went into that interview in complete disagreement with Sophie, and after it was over, he was like, that just com- that blew my mind, and it really changed the way I view family. So he thanked me and was very appreciative of it. Who else next week? And finally, um, this is another one we've had a few stutter steps with. Yeah, we'll have, they were supposed to be on last week, yeah. and they rescheduled for this week. But we'll have on Legal next and week. Advocacy Director with Project South and a past president of the National Lawyers Guild, Azada Shashahani and Fatima Ahmad, Executive Director of Muslim Justice League, about their article, article in the Progressive, The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. After the July 6th attack, federal surveillance programs expanded to counter white supremacist violence have made black and brown communities their main target. And bravo on that pronunciation there, my friend. Well, I had two weeks to practice it, right? That was very, very good. Always impressed with your pronunciation. Pronunciation? Pronunciation. Something. We'll have to ask. Yeah, we're looking at it. Run the numbers. Thanks to this week's producers. Dan Hill, thank you very much for producing today's show. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for stepping in and substituting while Lindsay was sick. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for producing earlier this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history and to Theron Humiston just because. And Richard Norwood, too. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell as I will be revealing my age and reliving my life with a completely unauthorized autobiography of myself and a conversation from 15 years ago from an icebreaker somewhere off of Alaska's coast about climate change and resource extraction that everybody couldn't wait for once 
the polar caps melted. And I hope to see you all this evening again at This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly every Wednesday meet and greet that's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251-2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It goes from about 6 p.m. till about 10 p.m., and I hope to see you all there. And if I remember, and you remember, I'll give you a free book just for showing up. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, putting, pointing your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.